0: Now again, let's uh, turn to the Word of God and to the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 9. The Gospel according to Luke and uh, reading in chapter 9. Before we read, I had intended tonight, as I said in the morning, to preach the second part of the text that we were on, but When I resumed it, more or less immediately after preaching, um, it was uh, gone from me. And uh, this theme instead uh, pressed itself upon me. And I think it originated, I'm sure it did, with my remark that um, we should pray that God would send us or raise up preachers of the word. And the Lord, uh, I think, impressed that strongly on my heart that I should take that as our theme tonight and uh, we take it in the prayer that the lord would indeed use it for his own purpose so we've been led uh, by the lord we believe in another direction so we'll leave that other text until god willing next time so let's uh, read as i said from luke chapter 9 and uh, first of all right at the beginning just a few verses at the beginning of the chapter Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And now if you move on down to verse 57, verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And uh, we'll take as our text uh, the words we find from verse 57 right down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Three prospective preachers and uh, the Lord's remarks. To the three of them, now Luke is obviously giving us a record here of three uh, brief encounters uh, between the Lord and three would-be preachers, and I think that these encounters are quite often misunderstood. Sometimes I think they are read and understood as though these men were considering becoming Christians or simply followers. Of the Lord Jesus Christ which is what every Christian is but the reality is that these are actually three professing Christians already in that respect they are already following the Lord but what they are either considering themselves or or what the Lord is calling them to here is to leaving aside their own lawful legitimate worldly callings and to become preachers of the gospel as the apostles were. Now, I've got two reasons for understanding the texts like that. One of them, I think, is perhaps only suggestive, but I think the other is conclusive. The first reason is that going out to preach the gospel is a dominant theme in the context here. You'll notice that out of his full-time followers in uh, chapter 9, The Lord had called 12 disciples together, and after a period of teaching them, he now gives them, in verse 1, power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So he then sends them to preach the gospel and to heal the sick. So he's clothed these original apostles with special apostolic powers and These powers will of course authenticate them as his apostles and along with it they will preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now they've already been called full time. You'll remember how James and John and Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed the Lord. That wasn't when they became Christians. I mean, sometimes we think that when Christ said, follow me to them beside the seashore there and they left their nets, that that's when they became believers. It wasn't. If you piece the gospels together, they had become believers before then. That's when they were called into the ministry of the word, which meant leaving everything aside and following the Lord full time, as we would call it now, or dedicating themselves to the proclamation of the word. So in chapter 9, Twelve of them have been chosen as apostles, and they have been sent out to preach the word. And again, if you go down to verse 51, you'll find the Lord sending other messengers out of his own group of disciples. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that's into glory, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers Before his face. And they went and entered various villages to prepare the way for him. And if you just look at chapter 10, just immediately following this, you'll notice that the Lord appoints another 70 out of his disciples. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go and he said the harvest truly is great but the labourers are few pray the lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest now these are people who are engaged in the full-time proclamation of the word of god not everybody who followed christ obviously was doing that there were many men and women who remained in their own villages and in their towns as quiet humble believers in christ but some were called to preach. But what really confirms that what we have here is disciples who would be preachers, you've only got to compare Matthew's account of this incident with this one. Now, it's not necessary to turn to it just now, but when Matthew describes these three brief encounters, he calls the second one a disciple. The one who came and who said... uh, let me first go and bury my father, he is called a disciple. And interestingly, the first one too, Matthew calls him a scribe. That's the one who says in verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew tells us that he is a scribe. And in fact, when Matthew speaks about the second one, being a disciple, he calls him another of his disciples, said. So that means that the scribe, too, who asked the first question, was also already a disciple. Now that's very important because it tells us that these people were already followers of the Lord. They had heard the good news of the kingdom themselves, they had embraced the good news of the kingdom. And every time the Lord and the apostles appeared, in their community, or in their vicinity at all, they would make an effort to attend and an effort to listen. And when they saw certain men following full time and going out with the gospel and being sent to villages with the gospel, they had a desire, many of them, to proclaim the word of God themselves. Now, Christ's intention in these three encounters is, I think, very straightforward. Although he sometimes takes the initiative in calling himself by saying, follow me. In other cases, the people come to him and volunteer themselves. Although you have that difference. I think in both cases, there is a desire there already to do this work. And Christ's intention here is to test it. To see what kind of desire it is. Is there desire really to serve the Lord? Is it really to win souls? Is it to build up the church of Christ on earth and to extend his kingdom? Or is it somehow selfish or self-orientated in some kind of way? Were they drawn to something like the signs and the wonders that the apostles were doing, like uh, Simon Magus was? We read of him in Acts chapter 8, who was greatly attracted to the signs and wonders in the apostolic ministry, and he wanted to buy the power with which to perform the signs. That's when Peter told him that he was still in the in the gall of it, and the bitterness of iniquity. He was still bound in sin, uh, and he needed deliverance from that. Is it that kind of thing that they're attracted to? Um, so the Lord tests that. He tests it. But although that's true in connection with those who want to preach the word, the principle is wider too. You, you can appa- apply the principle indeed to anyone who even desires to be a Christian or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would they want to do so? And uh, in Luke 14, uh, the Lord essentially tests everyone in connection with that. Great multitudes went with him. Now, this is the crowd generally. These are not the disciples who are following him everywhere, but these are multitudes who are following him while he's in the local vicinity. For example, in Capernaum or in some place like that. Luke 14, 25. Great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, and these are, these are such searching words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. That is, his own life and the life of others, even closest to him, must be as nothing in comparison. It's in comparison with their commitment to the Lord. Again, verse 27 Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, Cannot be my disciple. No, there's dying to self. That's self-denial. And he uses a couple of illustrations to enforce that. And if we don't have this principle of self-denial, well, we cannot be his disciples. Verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. Um, Christian profession is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, if, if there is no uh, biting quality in it, how shall it be seasoned? A Christian profession that has no dedication to God, a Christian profession that does not have Christ at its center, is useless. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now... Um, In the passage that we're looking at here in chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, the Lord is essentially testing the commitment of these three. I suppose in a way that the testings are in some kind of way twofold. It's quite possible that the Lord is not just testing their desire to preach the word and their desire to be ministers of the gospel, but also testing what they're made of generally too. He's possibly testing both at the same time, but the emphasis is on testing their calling or their commitment to the ministry of the word. Now this is a very important matter. Uh, No church can survive without ministers of the word. If God is not sending ministers to proclaim the truth, there cannot be any future for that church. There just cannot be and it is as serious as that, if the Lord is not doing that from the top, if He is not sending ambassadors, then we cannot but wither on the vine, and maybe that He is calling a someone from amongst ourselves, maybe even more than one. Um, maybe God may use this message afterwards, if it goes out elsewhere, maybe He will, but it's preached to you. And has preached to you first and foremost. And you must hear to see whether the Lord is sending yourself. Or maybe if you feel that he is, that he's now testing you. Let's look at the three, at the three men. And the first in verse 57, who obviously offers himself. Unless we presuppose that the Lord has been challenging people in connection with this very thing. After all, he just says a few verses later in chapter 10, and in verse 2, that the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Maybe he's speaking on these kind of things. And in response, this man offers himself. And he's keen. Lord. I will follow you wherever you go. And I mentioned earlier that Matthew tells us that this man is a scribe. And also in the language that Matthew uses, he tells us that he was already a disciple. So by his occupation, we know that he is an able man. He is well trained in the things of the word of God. The primary duty of the scribe was to write. The word of God. And of course, in so doing, he would develop a good understanding of it. And uh, he has embraced Christ as the Messiah. That is a wonderful thing because many of the leaders were not, but he had the God-given courage and the God-given independence of mind to recognize that Jesus of Nazareth is the true Messiah of God. And now he wants to commit himself thoroughly to the ministry of the gospel. I will follow you, he says wherever you go, or we could interpret that also to mean wherever you send me, and there's no conditions attached, absolutely none whatsoever. This man is willing, he is absolutely and altogether willing. Now again, it's worth emphasizing that these words convey not just what what has to be true in the heart of any would be preacher, but they do also convey the spirit that's required of everyone who is following Christ in life generally. And um, we see that elsewhere in Scripture. And sometimes you find the greatest commitment and the most unconditional commitment, you find it in surprising places. When we were studying the life of Absalom recently, uh, we noticed the loyalty of a certain men to David. Even when his cause was very, very poor. Uh, I think I remarked especially on Etai the Gittite, who was essentially a Philistine by background. And uh, when he had the option of uh, staying with David or joining the, the majority with Absalom, Ittai said, and these are wonderful words As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or in life even there also your servant shall be. Loyalty through spiritual loyalty is a pure and a beautiful thing and that man could easily um, have allied himself with the one who looked like winning but his soul was bound to David and his commitment to David was absolutely unconditional and David there is God's anointed king. He is the messianic figure the very type of Christ himself. And this soul cleaves unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever you are, in death or in life. In other words, I'll die for you as well as live for you. So wherever you are in death or in life, even there, your servant shall be also. And of course, these words remind us of the great change that came over Ruth too. And again, she's no Israelite. She's no Israelite. Many of the Israelites are in a hauled, backslidden condition. Um, That's one of the reasons that um, the situation develops as it does in in Naomi's life. But she finds Ruth the Moabites, and through the life and witness of Naomi, Ruth the Moabites comes to faith. And when she has an opportunity to leave her mother-in-law, when she's got the chance to go back to her country, to her culture, uh, to her way of life and to her gods, No, she will not. Entreat me not to leave you, she says to her mother-in-law, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. That spirit definitely has to be in every believer, man or woman, this commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his will for us in life. But it has to be so to an exemplary degree in those who are to be ministers of the gospel. Um, And the Lord wants to know From the mouth of this man himself, what is it that's drawing you? When you say, I will follow you wherever you go, will you really do that? Are you not sure that it's the glamour of the post that's attracting you? Uh, Whatever glamour there may be with it. Are you not sure it's the miraculous gifts that I have given to my apostles already that are drawing you? Is it some kind of power that you wish to have with people? Some kind of authority? Some way of lording it over people's lives that you're maybe not able to have in your existing calling? Is it the romance of a mission? The idea of doing something different in a hostile territory? What's your reason? Well, I think one way to discover what's going on in this man's life is just to read back from Christ's reply. And I think that's the only way we can get into the mind of this man. How else could we? We're no searchers of hearts, but the Lord is. He knew what was in man, and his reply to this generous author is just this, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I think with that reply we can only conclude that the Lord has detected that This man may not be prepared for some of the demands in the ministry. Now, there are many demands in the ministry that are of necessity hidden from us. There's things in life we would find very hard to do if we knew the details of them. And the Lord sometimes just gives us a general indication that there are difficulties in the way, and we're expected to accept that. And we do. But what the Lord highlights here is just this, that if you follow me, you'll have to understand now that nothing is yours. Nothing is yours in the way that it has been until now. So that if you give yourself to preach the word, you must live of that proclamation of the word. And you will never be an independent person again. Now, when the Lord contrasts himself here with the birds of the air and with the foxes, he says the foxes have holes. That's that's their place. The birds of the air have, have their own nests. But I don't have anywhere to lay my head. He doesn't mean by that that he actually has no bed to sleep in. I mean, the Lord obviously slept in people's homes. He was entertained in the homes of uh, Martha and Mary and uh, Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum and so on. His point is that his life is a wandering life and that his residence is not his own. And essentially the lesson is this, that until now as a believer, as a believer in me, you could choose your own life. You can choose your own business and you can choose your own residence and you're free to do that. It's lawful to be engaged in the affairs of this world. You've been placed into this life to be engaged in the affairs of this life. You're free to do so. But once you make the gospel your business, then like the Levite, you've got to relinquish these things. Your portion is to be gleaned from the tithe that God's people give and not from the business of this world as you had before. That's, of course, what Paul said to Timothy too. In in his second letter to him, he says to him, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, I think, sadly, that text is often misunderstood too. That word, that text is often understood as though it was a general warning to all Christians against worldliness. Now, there are a thousand general warnings in the Bible to Christians against worldliness, but this is not one of them. This is a specific warning to ministers not to entangle themselves with this life's things and this life's business, because they are soldiers. And as soldiers, their sole concern is to please the one who enlisted them as soldiers. You see the point? It's not for them to be entangled with business. It's not for them to be entangled with property. It's not for them to be entangled with other callings and other disciplines. They are all fair enough for Christians in this life, but not for the minister of the gospel. And if the minister of the gospel does deviate from this, you can be sure that that word entangle has a deep meaning. No one who engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. very, very true. We must be very careful not to entangle ourselves with that, so in other words, the Lord is saying that this will be an end to your independence. Now you might say well that's that, that that's a good thing that's That's a good arrangement um It would be good to be in such a situation where um, my needs are taken care of uh, by the tithe of the Lord's people as the Levites were of old. Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Times may come when you often wish that you were not so bound up with it. Times may arrive when you wish that you had your own business, that you were independent, that your property was your own, and so on and so forth. And that's the very point that the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing here. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you content to be absolutely in the service of the Lord and in the service of his people? Again, I think it's worth emphasizing too that although this is addressed to would-be preachers, there is a general application here to would-be Christians too. Because there there is a sense that, and it's an important sense, that once you follow the Lord, nothing you have is really yours anymore, is it? In fact, it was. It never was. It never was. You you make the mistake, you're a non-believer, and you make the mistake of thinking that you're your own man or woman and that what you have is yours. It's not actually yours. But it's even less yours when you become a Christian. I mean, you're not even your own yourself. You yourself are a slave, a servant, bought at a price. You belong to the Lord, never mind your property. But all that you have now is his, not like it used to be. Your home, your possessions, your time, your strength and energy. It's all the Lord's, you know. And you now have a new master who may requisition any of that, any time he likes the use of his kingdom. Uh, Ancient kings had the power of requisition. Uh, I suppose still uh, you could say that governments have the power of requisition. For example, if there's an important project to be done and if they deem your land necessary for that project, they have power to requisition your land. Now, we can argue about the rights or wrongs of that, but there's no arguing about the right of requisition as far as the Lord is concerned, because what you have is his anyway. It's his anyway. So so there has to be that sitting loose by our possessions generally, but for the minister, it's got to be different. It's, it's a different kind of life where you are no longer your own, but you are the church. Well, you are God's, Christ's in a special way. So Christ checks the enthusiasm of this first man. Are you ready to lose your coveted independence of life? Now, we're not told what effect this had on the first man. In a way, we would maybe like to know that, but obviously it's not for us to know. The Lord makes the statement about the foxes having holes, birds of the air having nests, but the son of man having nowhere to lay his head, and it's left there. We don't know what the man thought, but we know that he had to go home and think again. Maybe he did think, and maybe he did become ready to leave all that aside. But there's a second man in verse 59. And you'll notice that the Lord definitely takes the initiative here. The Lord tells him to follow me. And the purpose of that following, again, is plain. It's not the following of an ordinary disciple. It's the following of a preacher. You can tell that in verse 60 because of what Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So this man is being called to preach. Again, that goes back to what I said earlier. When Jesus passed by, James and John and Peter and Andrew, fishing, mending their nets, follow me, In other words, become preachers of the word. So here you've got Christ taking the initiative. And instead, in other words, instead of this being a growing desire on somebody's part to preach, this is a sudden compulsion that comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am constraining you. I am calling you. You, you follow me. You preach the gospel. And the man's response, Well, what a mystery. In verse 59, Lord, he says, let me first go and bury my father. Let me first go and bury my father. Now, this isn't easy to understand. On the face of it, the text seems to be telling us that his father has already died. That's certainly the obvious way to take it. But there is a difficulty with that. Um, In the culture then, um, people who died were buried very often on the same day or on the next day. And if the man's father had just died, it would be something of a mystery why the son was here at this time. Why was he not at home taking care of the burial of his father? It seems a strange thing to say, let me go and bury my father. If burying his father was that important to him and his father was dead, well, why wasn't he there anyway? And that alone would lead us to the idea that maybe his father is actually still alive. And where that makes sense is if you begin to take the statement as let me go and bury my father as a kind of proverbial saying. In other words, let me go home and look after things at home until my father has died. Let me take care of affairs at home. Uh, Let me, if need be, look after my father, or when my father dies, I'll then dispose of things. If need be, I'll, I'll dispose of the property then, and then I'll be free. I'll be free to serve, and I'll be free to preach. So what does Christ say? Well, I think what Christ does here is he effectively answers one proverb with another. You say, let me bury my father first. I say to you, let the dead bury their dead. In other words, there will always be people for worldly tasks. You'll never lack people to do the things of this world. The situation maybe isn't as urgent as you think you think it's necessary for you to be at home you think it's necessary for you to look after your father's funeral you think it's necessary for you to dispose of the estate you think that none of these things can be done without you and in the meantime until these things are happening you can leave off my call to you to preach the gospel so, inside this man's heart, now nobody else knows that nobody else knows that, but inside this man's heart, he's taking refuge in commitments that appear very plausible and in some circumstances maybe can be convincing enough, but he's actually taking refuge in these circumstances to evade to evade the calling that the Lord Jesus Christ is placing on him. worldly tasks. However important, we'll always find people to accomplish them, but not the tasks of the kingdom of God. And the call of Christ transcends all others. And the Lord says, I'm not calling you to bury the dead, I'm calling you to raise them. And that work of the gospel, that work of the kingdom has priority over everything else. And again, Christ addresses the word that this man needed to hear. The difficulties that he had were not really insurmountable. They were just convenient to keep him back from what the Lord was calling him to do. Now again, obviously, this is directed to those who would be ministers. You can find reasons for postponing your call, for postponing your training. You can find reasons. You can find reasons that are not unlike this, things that you've somehow got to attend to first of all. But are you absolutely sure they are genuine reasons? Or just convenient reasons? Are you absolutely sure? Are the hurdles in your way to starting now, to leaving your work and so on, are they absolutely insurmountable hurdles? Or are they just awkward ones? Ones that you could hurdle, but the truth of it is that you don't want to quite hurdle them yet. Does the Lord who is not is the Lord who is calling you not able to look after these things too? Only you know only you know you could come to me and say what your reason for hesitation is. You could go to a a more senior minister and say what your reason for hesitation is, but only you know the validity of it. Only you know the validity. But let me tell you, if you live your life rejecting this call, then you will have little of the comforts that you will think you have in life. Because the safest and best place to be all the time is in the will of God. Well, safe in one sense anyway. The best place to be in all the time is in the will of God. So beware that your reasons um, are genuine. Make sure your reasons are genuine. Sometimes they sound good, but they're not real. I think, again, there's a general word here for the would-be Christian. It's not just for the would-be preacher, but for the would-be Christian. The general word is just don't put any other duty before becoming a Christian. Now, there's no reason why any duty should come before that anyway. It's not like becoming a preacher of the gospel, where you could see difficulties with your existing commitments, your existing work, and so on. None of that should get in the way of becoming a Christian. I mean, that's your primary duty in life. No, there's never, never a reason to delay that no acceptable reason can be found to delay obedience to that commandment. Nothing in your life, nothing in your family, nothing in your circumstances, no reason whatsoever. Of course, people sometimes say, well, I'm going to look after the things of my soul and the things of the gospel and the things of eternity. I'll do it when I've got time to do it, or I'm going to think, I'm going to start attending church, you know, when, when I retire, or When I leave this present job, I'm going to start maybe giving more attention to these things. Well, are you really? Are you really? Is it as straightforward as that? Not at all. You can never postpone the gospel to tomorrow. It's never tomorrow's issue, the gospel. Absolutely never. It's always today's issue. And don't let any single consideration keep you... From serving the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Doesn't matter who your wife or husband is. Doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter where you live. Let nothing, nothing, no duty come in between you and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we don't know what effect this word had on the man. We hope it was a good effect. Maybe the Lord went to the root of his problem and maybe the man dealt with it. After all, the Lord called him. The Lord called him. So maybe he dealt with it. There's a third man. In verse 61. And here it's almost something of a mixture. You get the feeling he's heard a call to follow. But at the same time he's he's volunteering. Another said, Lord, I will follow you. But. Now. Here's a man, and we can't but feel that he's overheard the previous two. He's obviously overheard them. And he wants to be positive. He wants to be positive. But you'll notice that he attaches a condition. I will follow you, but, but, he says, let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now, the thing is that, this seems like a very, very harmless thing to ask. And all things being equal, we would expect the Lord to grant the permission to do it. Why not? If you know your Old Testament, your mind may possibly go back to a very attractive scene in Israel's history a long time ago in First Kings. When uh, Elijah was very downcast in the cave in uh, Sinai. And, uh, God showed him that the cause was not lost and that the work must continue. And he told him to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, in his own place as his successor. And so Elijah does that. He goes to abel mehola where Elisha lives, and he finds him plowing. And Elijah, you'll remember famously, throws his mantle over Elisha. Elijah throws it over Elijah, and Elijah understands the call. He understands the significance of that right away. I would tend to think from that that Elijah has been thinking on these things, that he has been contemplating uh, dedicating himself uh, to prophetic labours and uh, to, to speaking on behalf of God. And when Elijah places his cloak on him, he knows the significance of it immediately. And we're told that He said this, please, he says to Elijah, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah gave him permission, and Elisha did so. He went back home and kissed, obviously, a farewell kiss to his father and his mother, and he went and followed Elijah. And you would expect the same allowance here. The poor man has only said... Let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But the Lord makes no such allowance. No one, he says, having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What's wrong with a man? Well, obviously, again, we have to read back from Christ's response and when we do read back from his response we we find ourselves in the man's heart and it's obvious then that the man is somehow stalling stalling when when elisha asked to go back and kiss his father and his mother it's because he had a mind to leave but when this man wants to go back and say farewell His mind is more on the home than on leaving. He can't. He can't reconcile himself to leaving. There's a touch of the uh, Lot's wife in Sodom about it. When she when she looks back, when she looks back on Sodom, it's not a magical thing. It's it's a spiritual looking back. It's to her home and to her country and to her people, to her way of life and to her culture, the things that really did matter to her. She was she was leaving Sodom reluctantly, really, reluctantly, really. And, and that's how this man is. He's somehow just not ready to go because the things of his home and the things of his family still just mean too much for him. You'll notice with Elijah it was so different because he didn't just kiss his mother and father farewell we're told that he made a feast of the oxen that he was plowing with and he used the equipment of the oxen their yoke and so on he used that for fuel so he he made a feast for the whole family for everyone including elijah with the oxen using the yoke as the fuel that's a way of saying i'm finished with this life this this life is over now i am leaving it And I'm leaving it entirely. It's just like the apostles when they left their boats and their nets. The boats and the nets were still fine for others. Other people could use them. Other Christians could use them in their lawful business. They were still fine for James and John and Andrew and Peter to to go out in for pleasure and to fish. But no longer for their business. That's been and it's gone. So this man's heart is not fully Engaged. It's not fully engaged. And the Lord said, No one having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, fit for labor in the kingdom of God. I suppose we could take that text generally too and say that if you start hankering back like Lot's wife, you'll find yourself not inside the kingdom at all. We touched on that in the morning and the danger of apostasy, the danger of final falling away. But the primary reference here is to someone who puts his hand to the ministry of the gospel and then he looks back, looks back. Um, The only way to plough a straight furrow is to plough straight on. Most of you will know that. I mean, sadly, we don't live as close to the ground anymore. Uh, So many of us, Never see the ground and we never see the sea. Many of us were used to seeing plows and boats in our youth. But the only way to plow a straight furrow is to plow straight on. If you don't plow straight on, you'll plow crooked. Because looking back turns you aside. Looking back turns you aside. So this man's spirit of surrender is not quite there. Um, if 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 you're not finished with business, well, don't leave it then. If If you're really entangled with property and if you want to continue, well, it's not for you. Politics, it's not for you. Let the preacher's work be the work of the gospel. It's enough for you. And it's enough to thrill you and to fill your soul. And the sad thing is, if you stay away from it because of something that ought not to be preoccupying you, Or if you go into it and you turn back to be preoccupied with these things and they entangle you and disappoint you. But the Lord detects this man. He detects what's in his heart. He's stalling. He's stalling. And he needs to consecrate himself to the ministry of the gospel. Absolutely and wholeheartedly. Um, now, the interesting thing you see about all these things, if you take them together, is that they all have something to do with unbelief. This man who has, um, he's not properly reckoned that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, or the man who wants to bury his dead father, his father first, and uh, the the one who's looking back from putting his hand to the plough, they all have to do with unbelief. You look ahead to the ministry and you've got unbelief you're scared of being cast somehow into a a new dependence in your life and a new situation you're scared and you're afraid but that's the kind of scaredness and afraidness that you had when you became a christian was it not you were scared of a million things then were you not how people would accept you how you could start living your life amongst your friends or even your family or your people at work how you could begin to do this as a christian And these things once held you back. They held you back. But then when you saw the urgency of the situation and your need to be saved, they didn't hold you back any longer. And what did you discover? That the Lord took care of it for you. The Lord took care of it for you. He enabled you to live and work and witness in a world as his people. And do you not think that the Lord who did that for you will will not do the same for you in the ministry of the gospel? Do you not see that it's unbelief that is keeping you back from obedience to the call? Oh, but what will happen if I'm sent here? Or what if I get a charge that's like this or a charge like that? Well, uh, that's in God's hands. Don't you try and take, respectfully speaking, God's problems upon yourself. There are no problems to him. I know that, but just in a manner of human speaking, don't try and take God's problems upon yourself. He'll he'll equip you. He'll satisfy your soul with it. He'll give you the desire of your heart. If he says, follow me, go, go. It's the place to be because it's the place he's calling you to. It demands your consecration, yes, but with that there's a great reward. It's sad, you know, sometimes that our consecration to so great a work is so poor. I mean, if we really thought on this work and how favourable a work it is and how blessed a work it is, how how different maybe our attitude would be. Uh, I read a while back, a good while ago now, and I have no idea where I read it, but it was a quote from a young man in Mexico who was breaking off his engagement with a young girl. And he was describing how difficult his circumstances were he said, we get shot. We get lynched. We're fired from our jobs. Some of us are getting killed. We live in poverty most of the time. We have no time for concerts, for new houses, or thinking about new cars. Our lives are dominated by just one thing, but we've got a cause to fight for and a purpose in life. And that cause, he says, is my life, it's my business, it's my meat, and it's my drink. But that young man was a member of the Communist Party in Mexico. Not a Christian, but a member of the Communist Party in Mexico. But that was his dedication. That was his dedication. Now, this life's causes that are not God's causes, uh, they reward you pitifully in the end. You can spend yourself like this man for causes like that in the world, and you'll get, frankly, nothing back. Nothing back. The dedication, though, that's required of you for the Lord is something that rewards so abundantly. Did Christ not say that? If we give up for his sake, we shall receive a hundredfold more in this life and eternal life in the life to come. And if if dedication to communism can bring people to do that, surely, surely we can go and preach the gospel. Can you not do that? Can you not, as Paul said to Timothy, can you not give yourself entirely to these things, that your progress may be evident to all? And will you not continue in them? For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Go, go if he's calling you and preach the gospel. May the Lord bless the meditation on his own word. Let's, uh,